Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. This is episode 31, and on this episode, we're going back to the Western Front for the Battle of Lowe's. The French pronounce it Lowe's, and the British called it Luce. Take your pick. And I'll have to apologize because on this episode, I'll be jumping just a tad forward in time for this battle. We're still in 1915, but slowly approaching the end of it. Then, on the next couple episodes, I'll be reversing back just a few months. I know I said sticking to a timeline is the goal, but I also said I'll be jumping around from time to time. What can I say? I got a little excited for this one, and I got a little ahead of myself. No big deal. I'll get back on track. And I think in a few episodes down the road, when I bring 1915 to an end, I'll be ending it with Gallipoli. There's a lot that happened after the landings. But don't worry, folks. I still have plenty to talk about for the remaining days of 1915, and I think you're going to like it. And of course, before I get into this episode, let me first go over a couple notes for the show, as I always do. First, I want to give a huge shout out to you listeners. I'm almost at 10,000 downloads throughout multiple countries and on multiple platforms. I know for some people that may not seem like a lot, but... For me, trust me when I say it's a big deal. When I first started this podcast, I really didn't know what to expect. Again, I set milestones, and when I hit 5,000, which wasn't that long ago, I was like, holy cow. And now that I'm close to 10,000, it's just, I don't know. For me, it's unbelievable and amazing at the same time. I love talking about the Great War. I love podcasting about it. I love reading and learning more and more about the war. I'm just happy you fans also enjoy the same thing. So to you fans listening and supporting me, cheers. Mm, and let me tell you what I'm drinking for this episode. I'm having tequila with mineral water and a splash of lime juice. Probably not the best winter warm me up drink, but I'm in California and my heater's working. So cheers again. Last thing on the list, I just wanted to give you all the heads up. I started class up again, so the timing on getting episodes out might be pushed back a tad. Maybe. I don't know. I'll have to see how I'm managing my workload. Way too early to say anything for sure. Just wanted to give you a heads up. All right. And that's it. Just a quick couple notes. Let's say we get this show started. However you decide to pronounce the name, hopefully after this episode... You'll know that on September 25th, 1915, the small mining town between Lens and La Basse became the epicenter to some of the bloodiest fighting on the Western Front so far. The Battle of Laws cost an estimated 60,000 lives in just a few weeks' time, and most of that number came from the first 24 hours. Most historians have written about this battle being a costly failure, focusing on the mistakes the British made rather than the courage they displayed. The British managed to penetrate the line by two miles and captured 8,000 yards of German trench line. You'll have to imagine the price that was paid to achieve that. However, those gains in the end were lost and the overall goal of breaking through and holding the German lines was not achieved. It was clear to high command at this point that breaking through the enemy lines was going to be a very difficult task, 
Some believed it couldn't be achieved at all. By the end of August of 1915, the war had already passed the one-year mark, and the Battle of Laws was being scripted out already. The overall strategy for this battle, as urged on by Joseph Joffre and supported by Lord Kitchener, was to have the British support a new offensive in which the French would launch its 1st and 10th armies in the Lens-Arras region, while the Tommies assaulted through La Basse and the Luz area. Both Joffre and Kitchener believed this would bring on a rapid and devastating blow to the Huns that could possibly lead to an unstoppable advance, which ultimately would lead to victory. There were two new British divisions that were part of the Kitchener divisions, who were immediately signed to be the first in this battle. The 15th Scottish and the 47th London divisions both fell under Henry Rawlinson's 4th Corps, which were all part of Douglas Haig's 1st Army. The British in numbers had the advantage over the Germans in this area. However, the Huns were set up in well-prepared defensive positions. And like we've learned up to this point, numbers don't mean anything against a well-prepared defense. Now, there's another side of the story for this battle that goes back to April 22nd of 1915 at the Second Battle of Ypres. I talked about this on episode 21 when the Germans opened up Pandora's box by using poisonous gas on the Allies. Even with the fact that the French colonial troops took the blunt of the gas on that day, this was the chance for the British to put the middle finger up to the Germans and say, now it's your turn. The British will now use gas in retaliation for the Germans using it at Ypres. Although, the overall effectiveness of this gas attack didn't do the damage like when the Germans first used it. On May 3, 1915, Lord Kitchener instructed Colonel Lucius Jackson, a royal engineer, to take charge of what was then a prospective gas retaliation. At this point, they were still in the phase of thinking about it. The war office initiated a recruitment process for chemists who could put such weapons together. Weeks started to pass and no results were made. Sir John French became impatient and turned to his chief of staff, William Robertson, to pick an individual to head this plan. Charles Foulkes was given the job. Even at the point when Foulkes was appointed, the debate whether to retaliate with gas was still in session at the high command. Even Foulkes, after hearing that the Germans used poison gas, felt an outrage there was even a debate. He couldn't believe there was even a delay and that the higher-ups were having doubts, and he openly voiced his opinion. In June, the stamp of approval to use lethal gas was given. The initial plans for the gas attack at the Battle of Laws was for it to be a surprise, much like it was a surprise when the Germans released it at Ypres. Even though, this time, the Germans knew at some point gas was coming. But the key here was to get the gas clouds in the air for more than 30 minutes, because this was the limit of the German protective mask at the time. After 30 minutes, they would become ineffective. Once the cylinders were filled and ready to go, folks had to get the tanks onto ships, then boated over to France, then offloaded and put onto trains, then the tanks would have to be hand-carried to the trenches. This was a tedious and complicated process. Once at the trenches, the chemical soldiers would have to put them in deep emplacement pits, which had to be dug in the frontline trenches. 
This was so they could be safely stored until the time came to release the gas. The chemical soldiers had to attach connecting pipes with one end to the cylinder in the pit and then running the pipe up hanging over the trench, sorry, the trench parapet facing into no man's land. Once the valves were opened, upon contact with the air, the liquid chlorine would vaporize. And the rest was all depending on Mother Nature, the wind. No wind, the gas cloud just kind of sat still. Now, the initial plans for the gas attack called for 2,850 cylinders in support of the first core, 2,250 for the fourth core, and lesser amounts for the diversionary locations. And the gas would finish with a discharge of smoke candles for troop concealment. The front that the gas attack would cover was roughly around 14,500 yards. This is the calculations the British intelligence came up with to ensure the gas would outlast the German protective masks. The chemical soldiers began to arrive at the front at the end of August. They began their work preparing the cylinder emplacements by first digging fire steps and then excavating a pit about two feet deeper than the level of the trench bottom. They then used timber to shore up the sides to the level of the trench floor. They were then covered with layers of sandbags. The last of the cylinders arrived to the front the morning of September 24th. Aside from some infantry sentries, the chemical soldiers occupied the majority of the trenches at this part of the front line on Z-Day. That was 24 hours till battle. To understand why this was, the infantry soldiers feared the cylinders. German artillery was still being fired on them on a daily basis. They feared the cylinders would rupture, and that's understandable. Ypres left a bad taste in their mouths. They wanted to stay behind the gas at all costs. No luck to the soldiers. The rain god had paid them a visit, and it had been raining down on them all day. Soldiers described carrying their food in empty sandbags, and the food mixed with rain just become one pile of mush, but they were happy to eat it anyway. Nothing like eating a bowl of rainwater with a dash of slop or something that resembles food. Man, I miss the army. Also, on this morning, the British began a non-stop artillery bombardment on the Germans. This was to eliminate the German barbed wire, while at the same time in hopes it would kill as many Germans as possible. Some of the Tommies believed no German could have survived that bombardment. What they didn't know was that the Germans were evolving their trenches. During these bombardments, they would pull back from the frontline trench, then hunker down in deeper reinforced dugouts behind. Then, after the bombardment stopped, they would move back up to the front line. This tactic would be seen at the Somme in 1916. When the bombardment began, it was chaos for those soldiers in that area. They have artillery nonstop going on while they're prepping the cylinders. The sound must have been thunderous day and night. Gasman Ronald Purvis, an agricultural student before the war, described the situation saying, there was an awful roaring, whizzing, screaming, and banging of shells. A real hell must be going on on those German trenches. We left Chicory Factory at 5 o'clock on Thursday afternoon, 23rd September, and marched along to Anaquin via Bouvre. Artillery ammunition columns galloping along past us to the guns. 
great flashes of lightning going across the sky and a drizzy rain commenced, getting heavier and heavier, end quote. Late that evening, folks had stayed up to get the reports that all the cylinders were ready to go. Zero hour for the infantry to go over the top was set by Douglas Haig for 0630 hours. The morning of Saturday, September 25th had come, but there was a problem. Unlike the war, the wind was still and calm. Haig and Folks nervously paced as the special chemical soldiers and infantry huddled down in the trenches awaiting the orders. Artillery gunners were standing by their guns, locked and loaded, waiting for the order to fire. The minutes crept to 0550 hours, and then down to seconds. Five, four, three, two, one, fire. Red flashes of artillery guns could be seen from the observation sites at a distance. For the men near, it was a continuous loud deafening boom filling the air with smoke and the earth shaking at their feet. It was also at 0550 hours when over 150 tons of poisonous gas was released from the cylinders being forced out of the metal piping. The greenish-yellow gas hissed out and rose into the air forming a cloud above the earth. But the problem was, it was drifting very, very slowly towards the enemy. The whistle for the main infantry went off at 06.30 hours. The gas was moderately effective at the southern or right sector of the British line, but on the left, it began to drift backwards into their own men. Several of the regiments in the 2nd Division, 1st Corps, had it rough at the beginning of the attack. Those who weren't being gunned down by the well-placed German machine gunners were being hit by their own gas. Using gas at the opening of the Battle of Laws was not only for retaliation, but it was also to be used as a diversion, which in hopes would allow time for the infantry to proceed through the flat open ground. At the same time as the British were launching their attack, the French in the Champagne and Artois region were supposed to be simultaneously launching theirs. However, at Artois, which included Vimy Ridge, the attack didn't begin until early afternoon. At Vimy Ridge, the Germans held the high ground with the well-in-placed machine gun teams to cover the sectors. The purpose for taking Vimy Ridge obviously was to eliminate those gun teams who controlled the area. By the next morning, the French 10th Army attacking was so ineffective that Joffre canceled the preceding plans. And this is where it gets a little shady. Joffre telephoned his commanders informing them of the canceled assault. He then gave strict instructions that no word of this cancellation can reach the British. In a way, I commend Joffre for recognizing that taking Vimy Ridge and the Artois sector was not possible with the current plan, and by pulling the men back, he saved a lot of lives. But I shame him for not informing the British. This could have saved many more lives if they would have known their right southern flank would not be there to support them. After all, this plan was originally urged on by Joffre himself. I mean, think about it. He sends his men forward. They hit a wall. I mean, they're just getting annihilated. So he pulls back 
and then kind of just crosses his arm and says, hold up, let's not tell the British, let's kind of see how they play out. Well, they can't play out because they depended, the plan depended on you to support them. Here's a quick overall picture of the British attack. And I say quick because trust me, you can really go into depth with each of these battles, but I always try to keep it simple. Going from south to north of their front line trench, the southern end, which was the extreme right, depending on how you're looking at a map, was covered by the 4th Corps 47th Division. This is where the high command believed the breakthrough they were hoping for would take place. The 47th was right next to the French 21st Corps. And we know that that won't go down. The 47th was made up of various rifle units, which would probably be equivalent to a regiment size element today. Actually, I'm not positive on that statement, so don't quote me on that size comparison. Among the various rifle units was the first of the 18th London Irish, who was said to have kicked a rugby football ahead of them as they went over the top. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you have a rugby ball and you're about to go over the top, why wouldn't you kick it? There's a good chance that this could be your last kick ever. The soldiers would do this again at the Somme in 1916. The 47th achieved all their objectives, but the cost was 1,200 lives just in the opening stages of the battle. The casualties could have been much higher, and they may not have taken their objectives if it wasn't for the gas and, more importantly, the smoke bombs. Next to the 47th was the 15th Scottish, a new and inexperienced division, but was given the task of capturing the village of Laws. After that, they would have to cross Hill 70, a hill that overlooked the area as a whole, which the Germans had occupied, which also meant they had machine guns on the hill. Those nasty little things that go... After Hill 70, they were to take Cite St. August. Many critics of this battle asked, why would you give an inexperienced division such a hard mission to accomplish? Rawlinson's answer to this was that he had never seen such a finer unit put together with little to no experience, which in my opinion was just a complete horse manure of an answer. Rawlinson's decision to give the 15th Scottish such a difficult task by themselves cost many of lives. The 7th King's own Scottish borders were nearly wiped out completely. This was a bad day for the 15th Division. The gas, which was meant to also help them, had come back into their trenches by 0630 hours. The gas masks were so new and at an infant stage, they weren't really that good and it was difficult to breathe in. Going over the top with a mask on that you could hardly breathe through while you're desperate for air because your adrenaline is pumping, many of the men just ended up pulling it off and took their chances with the gas. 0630 hours had come when the men of the 15th Division heard the sound of the pipes... This was their cue to go over the top. 
the ladies from hell, nicknamed by the Germans because of their distinctive tartan kilts they wore even in battle, played the pipes with every ounce of courage and passion for their comrades going forward, and played it by their side. The pipes were played by Piper Daniel Laidlaw of the Seventh King's Own Scottish Borders, who would later receive the Victoria Cross for his actions. Laidlaw marched up and down the parapet playing Scotland the Brave. Another piper who won the VC on the 25th of September was Pipe Major Robert Mackenzie of the Sixth King's Own Scottish Borders. He was 59 years old. He received a wound but kept on piping. He would end up dying from his wound on the 8th of October. Once the Scots stepped onto no man's land, they moved forward with steadiness and discipline. But some couldn't hold it anymore. Several began to fall to the ground, yelling, tearing at their eyes and throats while gasping for air. The gas was taking its toll. Other men were walking in line and would suddenly be ripped apart by bullets. Several heads exploded along with torsos and limbs. Even with their own gas suffocating some of them and with German machine guns tearing gaps into their line, those who were still able to fight maintained discipline and kept pushing on. And because of this discipline, they managed to secure the village of Laws by 0800 hours. By 0915 hours, they had reached the Lens Road. The advance continued, but losses were heavy at this point. Many senior officers had been killed, and junior officers weren't confident in taking over command. But eventually, the cluster of men finally reorganized, and they began to move up the slopes of Hill 70. Again, Hill 70 was a major objective for this battle. This was the high ground and was well guarded with German machine gun teams. On top of that, their trenches were dug deep enough where the teams could hide deep in the ground from the safety of the artillery. Then once the bombardment stopped, they would pop up like gophers, get back into position and rain down hell with their guns. The problem for the 15th division at this point was those who made it up over the hill found themselves pinned down by the guns and those who were supposed to be helping had drifted south instead of east. This was considered one of the greatest disasters that the British made on the first day of the attack because the German second line of trenches wasn't even completed in this area. A breakthrough would have been possible if there was enough British troops to support the men who had made it over the hill. This would have been a good time for the reserves, but they didn't get into the fight until the next morning. What did this mean for the Germans? Was a counterattack an option? Since this all took place on the same day as the French 10th Army would, be, would launch their initial attack, the Huns thought it would be best to stand still, don't move men around, and just bombard Lost Village and the Bethune-Lost Road with artillery. This halted the British advance at this sector, and victory there would not be achieved. North of the 15th Division, the 1st Division was attacking the Lone Tree Ridge sector. It was named this because after heavy shelling, which leveled just about all the trees in this area, one survived, a lone cherry tree. The location was just about right in the middle of the battle map. When the 1st Division went over the top, they immediately found themselves in the thick of the gas. On top of that, the German barbed wire had not been severed by the bombardment prior to the start of battle. So these brave men go over the top only to be hit with their own gas 
And now, they're being stopped in their chat tracks by the wire while German guns are unloading on them. Even with the elements of this battle working against them and the appalling amount of casualties piling up, some men managed to find a gap in the German wire and penetrated through Hulag village. The Germans there deserted their trenches and began to fall back. This seemed to be a positive turn of events for the 1st Division. But, unfortunately, there wasn't enough men at this point to hold it down. By early afternoon, the German 157th Regiment showed up and drove them back. Having fresh reserves brought up to hold these gain positions and hold off a counterattack would have been the true positive turning point for the British. But that wasn't happening. Meanwhile, the 2nd Brigade from the 1st Division was involved in fierce combat. Most of the wire in this area had been cut, but the Germans were heavily defended with machine guns, mowing people down like overgrown grass. The fighting was brutal. Those who made it through locked up with the Germans. Bayonets in some cases were doing the killing. Men were charging with everything they had, driving bayonets into the Germans. Close range shots were being made. The death toll was accelerating at a rapid pace. Four VCs were awarded, but two of those were posthumously. Of the 6,000 who went over the top in this area that morning, only 1,500 remained by the end of the day. The 8th Royal Berkshire Regiment assigned to the 1st Division, they alone lost 493 men that morning. The rest of the fighting on the September 25th took place between Hulak and Labasse Canal. Just below Labasse was Aki Village. And below that was Foss 8, which was basically a slag heap along with a dump. This was protected by heavily fortified German positions at, excuse me when I say this, the Hohenzollern Redoubt. Then below that were the quarries. This would be the northern sector of the battle. So, if you're on the British northern sector line, Aki to the left, Foss 8 and the dump in the middle, and the quarries to the right. Pretty straightforward. The area to the right was allotted to the 7th Division under the command of Major General Capper. He would later be killed in this battle. Remember, during this period of time, some generals led from the front, not the rear. The center was allotted to the 9th Division under the command of Major General Thesiger. He too would be killed in the subsequent fighting this area, which was heavily fortified at the Hohenzollern Redoubt, was said to have been the strongest point in the German line at this battle. Embedded with the 9th Division, there was also several Scottish regiments who fought with the same ferocity as their comrades in the 15th Division. They too would suffer appalling losses. At the northern sector of La Basse, the 2nd Division fared no better than the rest. Right from the start, the gas was blown back into their line, and part of this came from retaliating German artillery that hit the gas cylinders before the men went over. The soldiers in no man's land couldn't move forward because of the uncut German wire, a reoccurring event for the British in this battle. The German machine gunners who had their guns well sighted squeezed off burst after burst dropping multiple bodies at a time. The 2nd Division's task was to take out the gun positions with grenades called cricket balls. But they were crap, and most wouldn't even ignite. It became a bloodbath that the 2nd Division had no answer for. In his book, Goodbye to All That, 
Robert Graves recalls a captain from C Company taking cover after going over the top from the heavy fire. He's seen his platoon flopping down in what appeared to him as that they were doing the same thing, taking cover. He whistled to his platoon to move forward, but there was nothing. No movement, no answer. The captain yelled, You bloody cowards! Are you leaving me to go on alone? Then, his platoon sergeant, groaning with a broken shoulder, gasped, Not cowards, sir. Willing enough. But they're all fucking dead. The Pope's nose machine gun traversing had caught them as they rose to the whistle. Two attacks were organized for the Indian Corps north of La Base. They too suffered from being hit with gas and artillery that didn't eliminate the wire problem. For some of the young Germans who just arrived to the line, fresh on the job from home, this was their first time seeing an Indian man. They stood out from the other Brits with their dark skin and turbans. In some cases, they were amazed at first, but they still didn't hesitate to cut them down. The Indian Corps too lacked support for this battle. But one thing that Gurkhas, Garwali, and Punjabi didn't lack was courage. They fought hard and continued to drive forward. They managed to drive salients into the German line, leaving exposed flanks. But again, there was no reserves to hold the lines that were gained. By 1600 hours, they had to fall back as the Germans were beginning to regroup. By the end of the first day for the Battle of Laws, the situation wasn't in complete dire straits. Despite the artillery not doing what it was meant to do by cutting the wire and decreasing the German manpower, if you know what I mean, and the good majority of the gas attack being a failure, it actually did more harm than good, and most important, the loss of life. Casualty count was off the charts at the end of the first day. And despite all this, the British actually were holding a good portion of the German frontline trenches, but the men were hanging on by a thread. There's dead bodies all around them. They're physically and mentally exhausted. They just fought for their lives to make these gains. This would have been the point where actually, well, actually the reserve should have come in a lot sooner to the battle, but this is where it was crucial for those reserves to have been on hand. The reserve divisions were the 21st and the 24th divisions, the guards division, and the cavalry corps. The 21st and the 24th had just arrived in France for this battle. And the cavalry corps, we know at this point, is rather useless in this type of warfare, but they will end up being dismounted and thrown into the front lines. The next day comes. It's now September 26, 1915, and some historians call this day at Laws a complete disaster, and the 21st and 24th will get the worst of it. The 21st and the 24th had been staged miles away west of the battle area. On the 20th, they received orders to march towards Laws to support the battle. The kickoff was the 25th, and they were barely being brought up now. Not a smart decision, but, but let me stay on track here. The first two nights, they marched 20 miles each time. The third night was even worse, and then they finally arrived in Lillers, 16 miles behind the lines of Laws. That's right, 
16 miles behind the lines. That's a whole nother night of marching. At 1900 hours on the 24th, they were ordered to the lines. It's important to note that the men had not been given full rations of food and little water. The men were completely exhausted at this point and the battle hadn't even kicked off. Being cold and wet is one thing. I mean, you can always throw on some snivel gear, have your buddy whip you up a hot cup of cocoa, you know, with those little tiny marshmallows if you're lucky, while you hunker down by the fire, thawing out your dogs, feeling sorry for yourself, thinking about who's keeping your girl warm back home. But being underfed with very little water, that just sucks. That's very demoralizing. On top of this, it was night. The roads were narrow amongst a landscape they weren't familiar with. Moving under the cover of darkness was not an easy task in 1915. It had been raining on the men all night. They were soaking wet when they arrived at their allotted positions. Sleep was not an option as the Germans had begun their retaliating artillery bombardment. The truth is, as the battle kicked off on the 25th, these reserves were pretty much, not to be mean, but useless. They were physically exhausted. And it wasn't their fault. Again, they had little to eat and drink since the 20th. Those poor fellows were in no condition to fight. I know what some of you might be saying. I moved all night. I marched farther than anybody had ever marched with X amount of weight on my shoulders, and I still fought. I get it. But this was 1915. And remember, most of these men were fresh from home with little training. There was a lot of normal folks, not soldiers. Plus, there's no comparing the calorie intake. There's a big difference between then and now, and you can't compare the two to measure who's got the bigger you-know-what. The night of the 25th slash 26th, the men were ordered up the line. Let's use our imagination here. It's dark. They're moving across ground that's been bombarded and littered with craters. They're not familiar with the terrain. It's, it's raining on them, and on top of this, there's dead bodies everywhere. And I mean everywhere, thousands of them. Walking past the corpses wasn't a pleasant picture. It was gory. Could you imagine the cherry soldiers walking to the line and coming across this? What they must have been thinking. When the men were given the order to attack at 1100 hours on the 26th, they too were facing some uncut German wire and enemy positions that still remained. There was no gas or smoke to cover them or to assist them. Not like the gas did any good the previous day, and they were moving over flat open ground. Open flat ground plus no concealment plus enemy machine guns equals bloodbath. The higher ups didn't even give the reserves proper maps. They were given these crappy makeshift maps that told to hit their objectives like Hill 70 which didn't even show up on the janky maps. Frustration, to say the least, was at its peak. The 21st was to occupy the sectors between the middle of the battle map down to the village of Laws itself. The 24th was to occupy everything north of the 21st. The guards division wasn't scheduled to attack until the next day. By now, the Germans were well aware of the British situation and how it morphed into a soup sandwich 
and they were doing all they could do to exploit the situation. Why wouldn't they? This is battle. The British made multiple attempts one after the other to make a push, but were denied. They were sp spread too thin and couldn't hold any sort of ground moving forward. The men from the 21st and the 24th were being cut down. By the afternoon on the 26th, the British GHQ decided it was time to put the Guards Division in charge of taking Hill 70. Many argue they were brought into this battle way too late. <laughs> Who wouldn't agree with that? A quote from the German diary described the situation, saying, Bodies of dead and dying lay thick outside the German wire. On the right or southwards, the 21st Division was cut to pieces in the same way. End quote. Robert Graves went on to write about the situation a couple days after the opening of the battle, saying, After the first day or two, the corpses swelled and stank. I vomited more than once while superintending the carrying. Those we couldn't get in from the German wire continued to swell until the wall of the stomach collapsed, either naturally or when punctured by a bullet. A disgusting smell would float across. The color of the dead faces changed from white to yellow-gray to red to purple to green to black to slimy, end quote. On September 28th, Sir John French made it clear to General Joffre that his reserves were now used up and that his right flank was exposed. And if he wanted the British to advance, the French would have to occupy the Laws village, but that was a no-go. On the 30th of September, Major General FDV Wing of the 12th Division was killed by a shell. This was the third general to be killed in this battle. By the 3rd of October, the Germans were successful in recapturing the Hohenzollern Redoubt. On the 8th of October, the Huns made a further attempt to capture lost ground across the whole line. By nightfall, after suffering heavy losses, the Germans pulled back and the Battle of Laws was over. The Tommies did make an attempt on the 13th of October to push the line before winter weather set in, but it was a failure. And in a nutshell, this was the Battle of Laws. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really did. I was excited for this. There's so much more detail I could have gone into. And I was first thinking of doing a two-part series, but then I said, eh, just do your best into making it one long episode. Such a fascinating battle. I mean, this was trench warfare. It proved to commanders that gaining ground was not going to be an easy task. And the use of deadly gas had now just become another weapon of war. I encourage you to read more about this battle, which brings up my Great War recommendation and it's one of the books I read for this episode. It's called The Battle of Laws by Philip Warner. Fantastic book. And speaking of books, I have the winners for the book giveaway. I put the names in a hat the old school way and picked two names. If you didn't enter, you didn't have a chance to win, and I'm sorry. Kevin and Dennis, your book is on the way. I hope you enjoy it. For everyone else, don't forget to go onto Amazon and get a copy of Between the Lines by Nadine Amoros. Folks, I hope you're in good health and spirits. I hope you're enjoying the podcast, and I appreciate all the positive feedback I've been receiving. Oh yeah, 
I'm now also on Twitter. I think you can just search the podcast name and it should come up. And of course, you can find the show on Facebook and Instagram. Folks, until the next episode, take care, everyone. <laughs>